you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Uh, okay, so let's jump into Zephaniah chapter 1. Again, let's, we're going to have to do a little bit of work on the front end that might feel somewhat academic, but I promise it's taking us somewhere. Um, the Old Testament uh, is all of the books in the Bible that are written before Jesus sets foot on the scene. So, um, these are all written before Israel, God's people, knows anything about Him. But it's not this collection of disparate stories. And I think oftentimes when we look at it, we think of it pieced up in that way, right? Um, like there's there's this story over here of Noah, and then there's this story over here, but they're not really connected. They're just sort of they're just sort of giving us an idea of who God is. But the reality is that the Old Testament is a coherent and cohesive narrative, a story about God's desire ultimately to have a people for himself have a people for himself. And this people that he would have for himself would be a people that God not only reveals his glory to, but would then also, after having displayed his glory to them, would endeavor to then display his glory through them, right? Because this is God's aim throughout the Old Testament, right? This is Adam and Eve in the garden, right? He reveals himself to Adam and Eve. It says that he walks with them in the garden and he tells them, look, you are made in my image, and I want you, as made in my image, to be fruitful together, to multiply, and to fill the earth, not with your glory, but with mine. So the glory that he displays to Adam and Eve, he intends to then reveal through Adam and Eve to the rest of the world, to the ends of the earth, he says. We know how that goes, don't we? If we're familiar with the Bible, we know that Adam and Eve rebel against that calling that God has placed upon their lives. He, they, they walk away from it. They turn from it to their own inward glory, right? That's ultimately the temptation of Satan in the garden, right? To, to be glorious like God. Not only like God, but in the place of God. And so what does God do? He starts again, right? He starts with Noah and he cleanses the earth and he's Starts with Noah and he says, all right, now you're going to be my people. I'm going to display my glory to you so that you might then reveal my glory to the world. And, of course, we know what happens, right? Noah falls into sin. He rebels against God's will. The whole thing plays out over and over again. We see the same thing happen when God comes to Abram. And what does he say? He says, Abram, your name is going to be Abraham. And your children are going to be my children. You're going to make a great nation. Right? Israel. Which is really the, the story of the rest of the, of the Old Testament. It's all about this people, Israel, this nation, that time and time again has the glory of the Lord displayed to them. And yet, time after time, fails to see the glory of the Lord then revealed through them. So they're constantly falling into sin, constantly falling into their rebellion and their brokenness and the depth of despair that can be sort of brought about by that cycle is what we're meant to feel when we read the Old Testament. And so that's who Zephaniah is writing to. Zephaniah is writing to God's people Israel, and he's telling them of the coming judgment, the coming judgment for their rebellion. And this is what he says. Let's read just the first six verses. Um, they say this, hear the word of the Lord. 
The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amarius, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Malcolm, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So this is God speaking to his people through Zephaniah, warning them of what is to come. And here's what we need to know. Uh, the, the little bit of history on the front end there is important. When it tells us that Zephaniah is prophesying in the time of King Josiah, what we need to know is that Josiah just recently, or at least in this time, is actively trying, actively trying to bring the people back to God. They've suffered a series of really bad kings who've allowed for idolatry and the worship of other gods, cultural syncretism, to creep into this, this people, this people that were supposed to be distinct. And Josiah is trying, he's tried, and yet unsuccessfully to see the Lord's people brought back to him. And then the words of the Lord are brought forth through Zephaniah. And what we read, if you, if, if you have any familiarity with the Bible, but with Genesis in particular. So like if you made it through the first two days or three days of your Bible reading plan this year, um, then, then you got this far, right? And this should be somewhat recognizable because the language that God uses here is the language of creation. Now what God is trying to help his people see in this moment is that in the same way that God comprehensively created Right? Everything in earth and sky and sea, the heavens and the earth and everything in between, the universe itself, that, that in the same way that he's comprehensively created that, he is going to comprehensively decreate. He's going to bring all of that to nothing. And it starts with, it starts with Judah and Jerusalem, is what verse 4 tells us. It starts with God's people. It starts with not those outside, not with the wicked Babylonians, the Assyrians, or any other idolatrous people, but it starts with the people of God because they're the people that God has revealed himself to. And so here's the thing. There's, uh, th this is somewhat of a side note, but I, 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 it does help us understand Lent. It's very easy for us as those who have been given a very clear moral structure in God's Word. To be stringent and loyal and legalistic to that above all else. And what happens then is in order for us to sort of feel better about the way that we are broken, is we look around at the brokenness of other people that is oftentimes worse than ours. Right? Like, let's just be honest. That's real. And we compare ourselves, and in some ways, in that comparison, we get just a little taste of comfort, don't we? Like, at least I'm not like that guy. 
At least I'm not like that girl. At least I haven't done that. At least I haven't taken it this far. At least I haven't done that much. And yet, brothers and sisters, the call for the people of Israel here and the call for you and I is to be first introspective. Right? To first assess the law in our own eye before we go about peeking at the specks in other people's eyes, as the words of Jesus would say. And so the call of Lent, brothers and sisters, is to recognize that judgment begins with God's people. That's what 1 Peter 4, 17 says, that judgment will begin with the church. So we ought to be first concerned with our own holiness before we are concerned with the holiness of those outside the church. Brothers and sisters, we cannot legalize or enforce morality through the world. If nothing else, the Old Testament should be a clear indication of that reality. Keep reading. In verse 7 it says this. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible again, the Lord preparing a sacrifice, that's not a good sign. It's the people's job, namely the priests, to prepare the sacrifice. This is God taking our work upon himself. He says, I'm preparing the sacrifice. I'm going to consecrate my guests. Because you have failed to do so. Keep reading. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold, those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills, wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. For all the traders are no more, all who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath, a day of distress, anguish, ruin, devastation, darkness, gloom, clouds, thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Again, we are getting a picture here of comprehensive decreation. In the same way that Genesis shows us very clearly that everything in earth and sky and sea was created by God, God is saying, I'm going to reverse that. I'm going to decreate those things as an act of judgment. And so what's the appropriate response? Well, verse 7 is really clear, right? Be silent. Be silent before the Lord God. Like that there's a sense that when we understand God's power, not only to create, but to decreate, that we should just kind of be silent before the Lord. For this day, Zephaniah tells us, is near. And he goes on in all of this descriptive language to make it very clear that there's no one that's going to escape this day, right? It doesn't matter if you're the king's son. 
It doesn't matter if you're an official. It doesn't matter if you're someone that's important. At least according to our estimation of their importance. He goes on to talk about these different locations in the city of Jerusalem, the fish gate, the second quarter, the mortar. And again, he's making it clear for us that listen, this comes to everyone. The fish gate where the blue collar workers would trade and sell fish that they had caught for the day. The second quarter, which was the new, the newly built portion of Jerusalem where, where, where all the rich people lived in their new houses. The mortar where the merchants and the bankers and the tradesmen would do their work. Cries would be heard from every corner of the city. And God will punish men who are complacent because they believe God also to be complacent, right? There's that wonderful myth that we have. Well, I believe like in a deity, right? I believe in a deity. I believe that something, someone created this. It's all sort of too perfectly arranged, right? It's completely at odds with sort of chaos theory, right? That you would have this much structure and order just sort of appear from nothing. So I'm cool with the deity, but I don't believe that there's really any involvement or any care or concern as to what's going on. Like he sort of just created it and was like, ooh, that got out of hand. <laughs> Let's just watch. God himself, in his own words, is saying here, listen, just because ill has not come doesn't mean it's not. Just because we don't see good doesn't mean it's not also the Lord is active. He's acting in history here. He's telling us that he intends to do so. so. Don't be complacent. What does he go on to talk about? All of these places that we would want to place our hope and security in, right? Fortified cities, battlements, our houses, our goods, our wine. He's saying, listen, all of that, all of that disappears, is decreated on the day of judgment. And I love, again, that we have just more reinforcement in that the word day in 15 and 16 is used six times as a mirror image of the six days of creation. God is created. He's going to decreate in the same measure, in the same comprehensive manner. Nothing can deliver them. There's no hope. Make no mistake, right? Some of you guys are like, okay, let me get to the good part. There's, no, there's nothing good in this part. There's nothing good in chapter 1. There's nothing good that's happening, right? If we continue reading, what does verse 17 say? I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. So why is all this happening? Because they've sinned against the Lord. What then? Their blood shall be poured out like dust. From dust you come, to dust you will return. And their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. A full and sudden end he will make of the inhabitants of the earth. All of them. That's terrifying, right? A full and sudden end. 
It's like that head-on car, car crash that you just don't, like, you didn't even see it coming. A full and sudden end. Lights out. Depressing, right? So, why Lent? Why a season to soberly assess ourselves? Why a season to look at our brokenness fully? To not hide from it, but to address it, to stare at it, to know that it's there. Why? Well, this is why. Because, brothers and sisters, if we are not careful, let's just be honest, if we're not careful, we can be tempted to forget that our life ends in dust. Our life ends in dust. The words of God to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 are true, and they've been true for every human that's walked the face of the planet, save one. Out of dust you came, and to dust you will return. Out of the dust God formed and breathed life into Adam, and to the dust our bodies return as we are buried beneath the ground. Nothing that we build in this life will last. It just won't. We need to be reminded that what this world promises will give us physical strength, security, hope, peace, joy, all of those things are things that one day will escape us. There are those things that, that one day literally will be dead weight. They will be Jack's fingers as they slide out of roses into the depth of the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> That is everything that you had ever hoped, everything that you'd ever dreamed, everything that you'd ever had a desire for or invested labor in, all of it. Down to the deep blue sea, Davy Jones' locker. <laughs> As old Jack Sparrow would say. So listen, like, your CrossFit body is going to fail you one day. And if you want to know what it looks like halfway there, this one. <laughs> this one. That body. The home that you were raised in, and perhaps maybe even go on to raise your family in, will one day be raised to the ground. It won't exist anymore. It will only take time. Your Instagram today will be your MySpace tomorrow and your live journal after that. <laughs> Seriously, think about your Instagram. Think about how much time and energy you've invested into that thing that literally, in short order, will be as useless as MySpace currently is. The time that you've spent curating that, I'm serious, like it's ridiculous when we really think about it. Right? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest one of all? That's what you're asking Instagram every morning. And every time it answers some other name, every time it answers some other person, some other thing, and it just builds that anxiety, it just builds that, that need to continually sort of feed that beast, and you never actually get what you intend to get from it. That self-expression or whatever it is you're trying to find, that the, the endorphins or whatever that happens when you get that like, It all goes away. 
the emotional well-being that you've curated by isolating yourself from every toxic person and every, every sort of uncomfortable situation, that's going to be invaded at some point. Especially if you spend any time in church. <laughs> and you will lose that equilibrium that you have worked so hard to maintain. In some ways, brothers and sisters, Lent is important because we're all like my dad. And some of you are like, wait a minute, <laughs> your dad passed away a year and a half ago. And that's true. Um, but I, I remember one day, um, a couple of months after his diagnosis, before things got really bad, um, he turned to me and he said this. He said, you know, Marshall, he said, I, don't, I don't feel sick. I don't feel it. He's like, so look, I, like, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to get better. I don't know if it's going to get worse. Like, all I can tell you is that I don't feel sick. But the reality is he was. He was very, very sick. They didn't find it until he was stage four. He was very, very sick. He didn't feel sick. He was very, very, very sick. And the MRI showed otherwise. So listen, Lent is when we boldly, courageously hold up the mirror and we look at ourselves. It's the moment that we willingly step into that MRI machine and we accept the results that it prints out. We recognize that we're sick, that we're very, very sick. Even though we might not feel it. I'm here to tell you this morning, and I know it's not easy to hear, but I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning that whether you know it or not, whether you feel it or not, you are sin sick. You are sick with sin. And like cancer, it it does not stay contained. This is the weight of Lent. We are desperately sick and we desperately need a cure. And we need to acknowledge that reality. We need to face it before it's too late. But here's the thing. In the midst of the weight, in the midst of the heaviness of the season of Lent, I promise you, if we just enter into it together, if we enter into this season and we acknowledge these things and we own up to these things and we stare at that MRI and we accept the diagnosis that God has given us, we come face to face with an even greater glory. We come face to face with an even greater glory. Right? Why would we want to expose these things? Right? Ignorance is bliss, is what many of us would say. But it's because on the other side of the MRI, unlike my dad's cancer, sin has a cure. Sin has a cure. There's a kiss that takes the curse away and brings us back to life stronger and more beautiful than we could have ever imagined. 
Read verses one through three of chapter two. They say this. Gather together. Yes, gather together, O shameless nation, shameless church. Gather together before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. What's Zephaniah saying? It's not too late. It's not too late. You may be hidden. You may be hidden. And so some of us are like, okay, hidden. Wait a minute. By whom and where? Because what we just read in chapter 1 was that there would be no stone unturned, right? That nobody would escape this judgment, right? There's no person, there's no place, there's no thing. Nowhere you can go. That's what he just spent all of chapter 1 telling us. So where, what is this hiding place? Well, here's what's incredible, uh, and something that would have been patently obvious to anyone not us. Names have a lot of meaning uh, in the Bible, and Zephaniah is no exception. Zephaniah's name means Jehovah hides. Jehovah hides. So listen, my friends, we can't hide from God, but we can hide in God, is what we're being told. We can't hide from God and His judgments, but we can hide in God. And we're being invited to do that by Zephaniah when it's telling us, he's telling us to seek the Lord, to humble ourselves before Him, to do His just commands, to seek righteousness and humility, because Jehovah hides. Galatians 3, 27 and 28 says, For all you who were baptized into Christ, into Christ, have put on Christ. Right? Like, this is a real, like, this is all connecting for us and helping us to understand that what Jesus came and did, that his perfect life in our place, that his death in our place, and that his victorious resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God the Father, that that work, when we put ourselves into that, we put it on and we're hidden. Right? There's a real sense in which Jesus is our castle buyers, that even in the upside down of this world connects us and shelters us until we return to the world as it was. who Jesus is for you and I, in the midst of the terror, in the midst of the devastation and the destruction that finds its way and makes its way around us, we're sheltered, we're hidden in Him. Because Jehovah hides. Because God hides. And how does He do that? Well, this is some really ironic, some really ironic language that we skipped over, or at least sort of passed over quickly in verses 7 and 8. And this is what it says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Again, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. Right? Again, the work of the people, the job of the people to worship Him rightly, to do as He's asked, they failed to do, so now God is going to do it for them. He's going to prepare a sacrifice for them. 
And you know what? On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, verse 8, he's going to punish the king's son. You see, God, this Jehovah who hides, this father who hides his children, is going to take his son. He's the king. He's going to take his son, and he's going to punish his son. He's going to punish Jesus for our sin. Totally unfair. And yet full of grace and abundant healing for you and I because his punishment was accepted by God for us. That's why in Corinthians, Paul says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin so that you and I might become the very righteousness of God. And so this is the gospel, brothers and sisters. We are hidden from God's wrath on this day, on this awful, terrible, horrific day of decreation. We are hidden from that wrath because of Jesus. And so we can enter into Lent and we can look at all those things and we can hold that mirror up honestly and without shame because all of that brokenness was dealt with at the cross. It was all dealt with at the cross. And so listen, we can enter into this season, we can press in, we can walk through all the difficulty and the discomfort of our brokenness and our sinfulness and our, and our unholiness and we can own it knowing that there's a resurrection that we're going to celebrate in just a little bit under 40 days. There's a cross. There's a death. There's a burial. But there's a resurrection. And when we are hidden in Christ, that resurrection is coming for us too. And so we can rest in that knowledge and we can struggle through this season in that knowledge. Knowing that if we are in Christ, we have put him on. He has clothed us. He has covered us on the day of God's wrath. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this morning again. God, just for the opportunity to be together as one people. And Lord, ultimately, to read these words and know that they're not just true of me. I'm not the only person that's broken, even though I so often feel that way. I'm not the only person that has sinned. I'm not the only person that feels so often like he fails me. God, we are that people together. We are your unfaithful people. And we're here begging you, asking you humbly to make us faithful. And we pray that prayer with utter confidence. Because we know that you are a promise-keeping God, and you promised us, God. You promised us that if you began a good work in us, you would finish it. So finish it. We sue you for grace on the blood of Jesus. You owe it to us because his work was full, comprehensive, totally and completely satisfying of your wrath towards us. God, give us the grace you owe Jesus. May we walk into this season with all the tears and mourning that it warrants.
knowing that we're sinful and we're broken, we're sick and we need a cure, but may we also rejoice in the fact that there is a cure and that it is coming. It will be finally and fully done. There will be a day when there is no sickness anymore, no sin anymore, no tears anymore, and you personally will look us in the face and wipe those things from our eyes and from our memory.